Writing Matters with Dr. Troy Hicks is a writable podcast. Find more episodes and subscribe on your favorite platforms. And if you want to learn how to grow great writers, check out writable.com. In this episode of Writing Matters, we speak with Dr. Scott McLeod, who is the prolific blogger at Dangerously Irrelevant, the author of Harnessing Technology for Deeper Learning, and someone who I have followed for many years as an educational technology leader. Throughout our conversation, we talk quite a bit about agency and authenticity in learning, both for students as well as for teachers. Welcome to Writing Matters. Today, I get to speak to Dr. Scott McLeod, who is a professor of school leadership at the University of Colorado in Denver. He is a prolific blogger at dangerouslyirrelevant.org and has been someone that I have admired and followed in the ed tech world for many, many years. So welcome, Scott. Thanks, Troy. I've been following you back. <laughs> oh, well, it's been great. And you have been doing some incredible work about um, thinking about ways to reimagine school leadership. You have a book about harnessing technology for deeper learning. Uh, you have a four-shift protocol. There's so much to talk about. Where, where do you think you'd like to begin our conversation today? What, what's new in your world and how are you thinking about um, educational technology and school leadership? Maybe let's just start there. <laughs> sure. Um, so, you know, uh, I'm, although I'm in Colorado now, I spent uh, nine years previous in, uh, immersing myself in the school districts of Iowa. And one of the things that happened there is we had this massive grassroots uh, fusion of one-to-one initiatives, right? So the state basically moved from six one-to-one computing districts to 220 plus in about half a decade. Um, you know, one district at a time deciding to go. This wasn't a main top-down model. I think one of the things we found really quickly is that, of course, as we all know, the devices and bandwidth aren't enough. You know, they sort of create the foundational platform to enable some interesting learning, but that doesn't mean that schools are ready to then take advantage of those tools in new ways. So, you know, the last four or five years for me has really been focused um, on both the leadership side and the instructional side in terms of how do we start making those day-to-day shifts in classroom instruction that are really impactful for kids um, and that create the kind of graduates that we say we want. Um, So we have the four shifts protocol, which you mentioned, um, and that was really an attempt uh, to help our districts in Iowa move instruction forward, right? So um, if you invested all this money in different technologies, but classroom instruction looks relatively the same, only digitized, um, then we haven't done much to take advantage of the power and affordances of the new devices. So the four shifts protocol is really focused around four key shifts, um, thus the name. Um, it's the shift from lower level learning to deeper or higher level learning. How do we ramp up the cognitive complexity of the work that we ask kids to do? How do we give kids more agency over that learning so it's not so teacher-directed and self-directed and they actually get practice being those lifelong learners that we say we want? Uh, The third shift is towards authenticity and real-world connection. How do we get kids' work out of these isolated, disconnected classroom contexts into their local, global, online communities um, so they quit asking us why they need to know stuff? Um, and then, and then, you know, the fourth shift is the shift from analog to digital. And although that's important in and of itself, really the technology is the lever to make those first three things happen. You know, kids can be more powerful, authentic learners, um, and have more agency over their learning with tech than they can without. 
So, you know, the protocol contains sets of concrete look-fors and think-abouts um, that help folks take an existing lesson or unit and shift it forward. And so what I found is that although much of my work with leaders is around, you know, sort of visioning and leadership behaviors and support structures, the instructional redesign work has been really fun. I've been spending most of my time in the instructional redesign space, right? Uh, rolling up my sleeves with teachers and coaches, redesigning lessons and units, helping us see how those smaller shifts can add up over time to create the kind of long-term classroom learning experiences we want for kids. And it's been an absolute blast. Fantastic. And, and I think for me, that's been part of it too. It's what are the moment to moment minute by minute sometimes you think you have a lesson plan and then you have to adjust and change. I, I would love to hear an example of what this might look like as you're working with teachers or as you've been in classrooms, you know, how do you help them see the technology in a different way? What is it that you're, you're talking and thinking about with individual educators as you're, you're helping them be more strategic, helping them give students agency and more authenticity? Sure. So what we would do with teachers is we would take a particular lesson or unit, right? And we would say, like, what do you want to hack at it with? Do you want to play around with deeper learning? Do you want to play around with agency? Do you want to play around with more authentic work? Like, where do you want to go with this, right? The fourth section, which is the tech section, really focuses on communication and collaboration. Um, so, you know, let's take that one, for example. Um, so in the, uh, section D, the tech infusion section, right? We ask questions like, do you students even get to collaborate at all? And if so, with whom, right? And so what we might look at is particular lessons say, all right, so the way you've got this set up is that you've got kids working in pairs in the classroom on this, you know, fairly fakey task. Um, and the idea is that what if we wanted students to learn that same material, but extend their connections to people outside, right? So, you know, the, the protocol specifically asks you to consider, uh, right now you have students working with each other in the school. What if you wanted them instead to work with outside adult experts and organizations outside of the school? So maybe we'd give kids a task like learning about different kinds of maps, demographic maps, political maps, topographical maps, whatever, right? Typical assignment might be like, do a little research on the web, find out some, what some maps are, you know, present to your classmates, this is a political map, blah, 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 right? So, but what if you actually worked with some local entities outside who use mapping in their day-to-day -day work, right, and learn about maps that way? So now what we've said is we've asked you to take the lens and do a pivot where we said, choose adults outside of this school. What could that work look like instead, right? And then we do that coaching work around you know, the city planner, the local parks and rec department, the mayor's office, the, you know, um, the corporate delivery service, you know, it doesn't matter, right? So all of them are using maps, right? And then figure out how to connect student work to that in a way that's, that's more authentic and real and so on. Um, another example might be to take a classic, I don't know, elementary lesson where the teacher's pushing information out on a whiteboard to her, to her kids while they sit passively and listen. Um, and ask some really critical questions like right now as the teacher you're the primary driver of the talk time and you're the primary user of the tech right what if we wanted students to be the primary users of the tech and we wanted students to be the primary driver of the talk time how would we redesign this to get there and then we would have a mm -hmm. conversation where we said you know I want the answer to be this instead of that how do we redesign to make that happen 
Uh, and what we're finding is that when we do that work collaboratively and without judgment, um, that we can always come up with some fantastic ways to start shifting the instruction, right? So uh, my co-author, Julie, and I, we talk a lot about this idea of the redesign pivot. I want the answer right now is teacher. I want the answer to be student instead. How do I redesign to get to that answer? Um, and I'll put my head together with a few uh, smart colleagues and we'll start brainstorming and, oh, check that out. That's better. Right? Mm -hmm. So it's really fun. Yeah. Well, and I think what I hear you saying in there is that this is not only intellectual, pedagogical work, this is emotional work. This is helping teachers understand who they are in the classroom. And you, you use some words like, collaboratively and without judgment and maybe you didn't say this but I heard it in the tone of your voice with a little empathy what are those conversations like how does that feel to be in that moment where you're coaching a teacher in that way and to help them see that yeah I am dominating the airtime here and I am standing in front of the technology um, that's got to be a little uncomfortable <laughs> Well, it could be, except that we always try to stress to teachers that they own the process, right? So within the protocol, right, we say things like, do you want your kids to have practice driving their own learning, right? And if they don't, or if they're not, you know, interested in that at the moment, then we don't work on section C, student agency and personalization. We go find some other area in which we can dialogue. Um, so, you know, the teacher has come to us and said, I want to figure out some ways to give my kids more agency over their own learning. Right. So they're coming to us with that predisposition. And then, you know, the conversation is not meant to judge you. Right. And I think some of these tech integration frameworks in particular are kind of judgy. Right. We're going to put you on a certain level or a certain status and then say, then please move this direction. Right. And what Julie and I are really trying to focus on is this idea. What are you trying to make happen? What are you trying to accomplish? Let's use the protocol to help you get there in an idea generating collaborative coaching way. Right. Um, and so you get to pick which which section you work on, you get to pick which items within the section, you get to pick how far you go on those items, right? Big steps, baby steps, whatever. So it's very respectful of teachers' uh, skill sets and dispositions and comfort levels. And, uh, you know, we really try to have them drive the conversation. We're really just a coach on the side with hopefully with a few other folks um, having this collaborative conversation about what it could be instead. Mm. I appreciate that you're honoring the experiences and the ways that they come to the conversation. And it sounds to me too, like you, you do position this as something that they are volunteered and not voluntold or required <laughs> to do, that they actually come to this with a little bit of sense of their own agency and knowing that they want to uh, participate. I, I think one of the titles of one of your blog posts was something about why why this is not meant to be an observation or evaluation tool, but it's meant to actually, you know, empower teachers and help them move forward in those ways. Absolutely. Well, that, yeah. So are there ways then that you're thinking about um, how teachers can do that work with one another or um, in collaboration as part of like professional learning networks within the schools? Are, are there other extensions and adaptations that you're making with the four shift protocol as your work moves forward? Yes. So we have a book. It's called Harnessing Technology for Deeper Learning. I think you mentioned it at the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, in that book, we introduced the protocol. We give eight examples of redesign so that people can see uh, how Julie and I use the tool. And then a whole end chapter on tips and strategies and suggestions for how to use it. 
Um, what I found is that if I get a chance to work with teachers and coaches and principals live, right, in person, is that we can usually introduce the protocol to them in a couple hours easily, right? We'll pick a section, we'll redesign a lesson together, we'll pick another section, we'll redesign a lesson together. What Julie and I are trying to do in, in that work is model the kind of conversations and instructional redesign uh, dialogues that we're trying to make happen. So, you know, a typical day for me with a group of teachers might be, let's spend the morning learning about the protocol and practicing using it with lessons that aren't yours, so you're not defensive. And then we'll spend the afternoon redesigning stuff that is yours, right? Um, and so that tends to be a pretty powerful setup, right? And by the time they're done in just a few hours, you know, or half a day or so, they can head off and then apply that in their own, you know, department teams, grade level teams, PLCs, PLNs, whatever makes sense to them. Um, and we're getting some really good feedback that it's been helpful. I think that move that you just described, I mean, this is one that I was having a conversation with some colleagues as we were planning professional development too. I ultimately lost and we did have the teachers bring their own lessons for critique and analysis and we'll leave the the rest of the story un, untold at the moment. But I think that, I think the fact that you're, you're helping teachers see that, okay, it's not about you personally, almost in a Japanese lesson study kind of way. Like it's about the learning and about what you're asking students to do and how that positions the students. That's helpful. And I, I really appreciate that you're again, honoring the voices of teachers and bringing their knowledge and expertise to the table and engaging them in this kind of a collaborative inquiry. That's great. So shifting slightly and thinking a little bit about your experience with educational technology and the, all the different things that you've done in the past and knowing that this is an impossible question to answer, how do you help teachers pick tech tools? And I know even in setting up the question that way, I'm already not focused on the learning and all that, but um, let, let, let's think about that for a moment though, because you must see dozens, if not hundreds of tools come and go every year you're obviously involved in the learning networks with ISTE and other organizations. So you see tools come and go. How do you personally make decisions about what tools are valuable and the ways to integrate them into your teaching? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, when I was a young new assistant professor, uh, I had a dialogue with my colleague, Joan Hughes, who was at the University of Minnesota with me at the time. She's now at UT Austin. Um, and one of the frames that she gave me that's always been really helpful to me is this idea of uh, we're looking for tools that have low floors but high ceilings. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, they're easy to get into, right? They don't require a lot of training um, in order to dive in and start using, but they're very open-ended in terms of how you can use them, and which means that they have lots of possibilities for how we might use them. So, you know, an example of an open-ended technology might be something like um, the video capability of your smartphone, right? Like it doesn't take long to learn how to push the button and go, but we can use that tool for all kinds of creative possibilities with kids. I mean, you know, we could probably generate, you and I would generate several dozen just, you know, in a few minutes. Um, and those are the kind of technologies I look for, ones that sort of honor students as the primary learner um, and user of the tool and ones in which with a little creative thinking, we as, you know, learning communities, learners and teachers together can figure out all kinds of different ways to use the tools. Um, 
some tools are very, very specific and narrow, and you can only use them for a certain thing. I'm thinking about something like a Kahoot, right, which is pretty much a multiple-choice tool, no matter what you want to do with it. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but again, something more like, uh, you know, the audio uh, podcasting app or the video button or, you know, even something like uh, Google Docs, right, which we can do some really interesting stuff with if we choose. Um, because of that sharing and connectedness capability, um, you know, a class blog, those are all things that sort of resonate with me in terms of being very empowering of students and having lots of different ways we can run with them. Right. Well, and even picking up on that, and I, I say this knowing that K-12 colleagues are faced with dozens, if not hundreds of students every day, faced with incredible pressures for assessment and time. Yeah, like you just said, there are tools that have low floors and high ceilings. So for instance, one for me that I I continue to talk about and share is this idea of screencasting. And yes, you can use screencasting to create a lesson. And yeah, if you're gone and you're going to have a sub or if you want students to have flipped learning or things like that. But how about giving students feedback with screencasting? And, you know, you're looking at their project and you're actually giving them feedback. Oh, wow. Yeah. Or having students send you the director's cut. Like we made this blog post, we made this website, we made this infographic, we made this digital video, have them record over top and and here, give them three or four prompting questions to reflect on their work. So I, I appreciate what you're saying. Like sometimes the most common tools are are overlooked and we just have to make that little switch to to kind of think about why those tools might work in different ways. Absolutely. Yeah. So are there other particular um, tools? You mentioned Google Docs. You mentioned having students use their their smartphone cameras to document their learning. Are there other low floor, high ceiling tools that you have in your toolbox that you use in different ways? Uh, Yeah, I've been playing around a lot with Google Sheets as a tool for group facilitation, um, which doesn't seem intuitive since it's just a spreadsheet. Um, but that works pretty well. I've been playing around with Flipgrid a lot lately, um, trying to do more with my own school leadership students around audio and video, um, trying to push some boundaries there um, in ways that they may not um, have much experience with. Uh, you know, we talk a lot uh, with school administrators about sharing the story of the awesome things that are happening in their school and you know, I think the audio and video capabilities of their smartphones are vastly underutilized as quick and easy ways to do that work. Um, you know, a principal can stroll down the hall and pop into an awesome, exciting activity that's happening with kids and a teacher. And, you know, all she has to do is hit the record button and capture 30 seconds of that. And, you know, a minute later, it's live on the school website where parents can see it. Mm-hmm. And the kind of goodwill and connection that that builds with your community is just phenomenal. And yet most leaders don't do it. Um, and it would be, right. and it's not a real like time load, right? It, all you have to do is set up the structure at the beginning and then all you gotta do is hit the button and go. So, yeah. you know, it's those kind of conversations that we're having about what are those tools that are already in your pocket, literally, um, that you could be using mm-hmm. to really drive some meaningful leadership work and celebration of student success, um, you know, that may be going untapped right now. Right. Well, and I think, again, it's interesting. It's a mindset shift, right? Like, yes, it's very easy to pick up the phone and hit record. One, you just have to be in the mindset of picking up the phone and hitting record. <laughs> right. and number two, 
you have to think though, and I wonder if this is part of why some educators are hesitant, like, okay, I am going to put this out in a, pardon the expression, maybe a raw form, like I'm just going to post it on Periscope or to Facebook Live or whatever my school community connects with, Seesaw, whoever. Yeah, right. um, and I'm not editing. There's no post-production. Th that's risky, right? There, there's some element of if I put myself and my students and my teachers out there, ooh, what does that what does that do? So I do. Well, I yes. And it's also more authentic, right? Like mm. it's, our, it's our unfiltered selves. And I think school administrators and school organizations are often so risk or controversy averse that we put up these artificial walls between us and the people we're supposed to be serving. Right. And I think we see over and over again that when an administrator chooses to break down those walls and have, to behave with the people around her in her community in very authentic, real ways, right? And oh, oops, that didn't go quite well, right? And they laugh it off and go, and, and everybody can resonate with that, right? It doesn't have to be polished and perfect and professional and run through the legal team and the media team and whatever, right? Because by the time it comes up the other side, it doesn't resonate with us in the same way because there's no authenticity. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, and I think, you know, we could have a whole other conversation about school use policies and other things like, you know, social media contracts and those types of things as well. Yes, we so, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm kind of curious then, um, also, you know, thinking about um, the role of feedback and especially the role of technology to support students um, with feedback. And, and knowing, again, that we're all overloaded, I still have papers I'm trying to grade from <laughs> a, yep. a week ago from my undergrads. Um, but do you see ways that people are using technology to get feedback to students, maybe in a more timely manner, a more efficient manner, a more authentic manner? Mm -hmm. what, what are the ways that you see technology supporting um, students getting feedback and for teachers providing feedback? Yeah, I think a, a couple of things, right? So one is, first of all, you have to have the mindset about what kind of feedback are you trying to give? Uh, we were talking about grading and assessment in one of my principal licensure classes this week. Um, and we talked about, you know, we know now that even when you give rich, robust feedback to a student, if you also give them a score or a number, that they ignore the feedback. All they focus mm -hmm. on is the number. Right, so the first thing to do is to set up your feedback mechanisms so that they will be received, <laughs> right, by your students. Um, but then I think you know a couple shifts in feedback technologies I think have been really useful. One is the ability to very quickly give audio or video feedback as opposed to having to type things out. Right, most of us talk much faster than we can type. Um, and so the ability to attach a very targeted audio or video comment uh, to a particular location of a student's work is really helpful, um, right? Uh, in terms of saving time and being efficient uh, and, and yet still being effective, we can actually give more depth of feedback that way than we could otherwise. Um, so I think that's the first thing, right? Um, and so, you know, I've had my students engage in a couple of activities where I said, instead of typing something up, you know, talk it out instead. And the sheer volume of what I got from them was much greater within the same amount of time because mm -hmm. technology allowed that to happen. Right? And I think the second piece that I think is really powerful is this idea that we can all be collaborative and within the same space. 
right? And so now it doesn't just have to be the teacher giving feedback in this hub and spoke model. We can really be an interconnected web of learning where students are giving each other feedback, right? Through classroom mm -hmm. protocols and guidelines and rubrics and so on. And so helping students own that peer-to-peer -peer feedback process, maybe even before it gets to us as instructors, um, is also really powerful. And so I think, you know, that wasn't as easy to do in the past without technology, um, particularly if you were trying to give feedback across locations, right, where you wanted to have your class interact with the class somewhere else. Um, mm -hmm. But now we can. And so I think, again, I keep going back to sort of like some of these sort of foundational technology affordances that we sort of take for granted, we're still not taking advantage of. <laughs> mm. I, I think that's always the challenge again, right? Like we, we have these tools in our pockets that allow us to do certain things and either because we've never experienced those things or we don't think about school in a particular way, we think about school in this way and this is the way it's been. That's, that's always a challenge. Right. Wow. Well, it sounds like you're doing amazing things with uh, school leaders and with teacher leaders and I really appreciate hearing about that. As we close our conversation, I, I'm also especially curious to hear about the role of writing in your personal and professional life. You are a prolific blogger, social media user, author of books. You're obviously writing curriculum and other materials uh, with and for educators. Can you tell us just a little bit more about your life as a writer and how you see the role of writing in your own life? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as a professor, of course, I'm writing all the time. I think, you know, a really profound shift happened for me in 2006. Um, and, you know, the, there's this old saying that somebody brilliant came up with that on the internet, you can write yourself into existence. Um, and that has always resonated with me because I basically did that, right? So I was a local assistant professor at the University of Minnesota. I felt like I was doing good work, but, you know, I didn't have a ton of visibility. I'm a new guy. Um, and then I started the blog in 2006. And within six months, you know, was connecting with people all around the world, was getting different kind of visibility for my work was getting lots of feedback about my ideas, right, which really stretched and challenged me in some really uh, powerful and meaningful ways. And so for me, writing is an intensely creative act, but it's also an intensely connective act. Um, and so because I've chosen to put my writing in a public place, in a public space, what it's allowed me to do, it's allowed me to take my authentic voice, not my academic voice, right? And really put it out there in a way that's been impactful both for me and for others. So, you know, when you write for a research journal, um, there are forms that we follow, right? Mm -hmm. and, it, and it often doesn't feel very authentic. It's not that conversational way that I typically interact with people. But through the blog, right, I can write any way I want. Um, and that's mm -hmm. great because again, it goes back to that authenticity angle. Um, and what I found is that as I've been my authentic self in my public writing space on my blog, um, that it has tremendous impacts, uh, on both myself and others, right? I have schools all around the world that are using my ideas and resources, which is fantastic, right? You know, um, cause I feel like I'm making a difference in the lives of children and educators. 
Um, it's given me incredible, you know, boosts to my own professional career and visibility. Uh, wasn't really the goal, but it's turned out to be that way. You know, I've had some mm -hmm. very interesting opportunities that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Um, and most of all, I found, you know, thousands and thousands of really smart people that I never would have found otherwise um, mm -hmm. that make me better um, as a professor and as an educator and as a learner, um, you know, that are completely outside the academic sphere. Um, but are willing to dialogue. And so, again, simply by choosing to put the writing in that space, uh, it's been unbelievably powerful. Uh, and I'm hearing how that experience for you as a writer is informing your work as an educator and informing, you know, when we go back to what you said about the four shifts, there's, there's agency, there's authenticity, there are things that are happening with you as a writer that you're now trying to inspire in other educators so they in turn can inspire that for their students. Absolutely. Amazing. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for the work that you do with and for teachers and with and for students. I really appreciated having the opportunity to connect with you today. Thank you, Troy. It's been a pleasure. Writing Matters with Dr. Troy Hicks is a writable podcast. Discover more episodes and subscribe on your favorite streaming platforms or check out filmed episodes on YouTube. And if you want to learn how to grow great writers, check out writable.com.